What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. That's to get the people's attention. That's when you and Slow Drag come in with the rhythm part. Me and Cutler play on the break. The late Chadwick Boseman there in the trailer for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is currently playing in limited release before coming to Netflix later this month. Adam, Ma Rainey herself is right there in the title, but fair to say Boseman puts his own stamp on this movie. Yeah, Viola Davis certainly no slouch as Ma Rainey, but we'll talk about Boseman. We've got a review of Ma Rainey and of David Fincher's latest, Mank, which comes to Netflix this weekend. That and more. Now, I I know you want me to scream Mank here, Adam, (laughs) but we've done that to death, so I'm going to substitute it with the title of the great Norwegian pig documentary, Gunda. (laughs) It's all except Gunda ahead on film spotting. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, it's the first week of December, and we've got a couple of high-profile prestige movies to dig into. It almost feels like a normal week for once. Yeah. I mean, it feels like this time of year, to a degree, packing in as many films as we can in a single day. We're not getting to go see them, of course, with critics in a theater, those big prestige daytime screenings at the end of the year. But uh, we're watching as much as we can, and there's a lot of good stuff. Mm -hmm. We will talk about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and more later in the show. But first, David Fincher, a period piece a movie about movie making. Mank has all the makings of an award season prestige picture. Is that a good thing? Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz. Herman Mankiewicz, New York playwright and drama critic, turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hearst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, lightning, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. The admonition, don't forget the writers. My longtime listener, Paul Nayrink from San Francisco. Hello, beloved film spotting. I see that Mank is about to be reviewed, and it has spurred me to write to you about something that has been on my mind. One thing I have noticed about film spotting over the years is how directors and cinematographers are discussed much more deeply and thoughtfully than the writers. Writing is the creative lifeblood of cinema. Without the written page, there is no film. Even for improvised dialogue, a script is there as a map for the characters, tone, theme, conflicts, etc. As tempted as I might be to mount some kind of defense, we are, after all, responding to what we are taking in visually on screen, and minus familiarity with the original screenplay, assigning authorship can be tricky. The reality is that, however unintentionally, we too 
our Griffin Mill, doing our part to crush the spirit of screenwriters everywhere. I was going to suggest it would be fitting then to start by focusing on Manx writer and delay discussing director David Fincher as long as possible, except there's a few issues with that approach. To start, Manx writer doesn't have the prolific list of credits his subject, Citizen Kane screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz has. Mank is the list. And his name is Jack Fincher, David's father, who died in 2003. So any insights we might hope to glean from Fincher the Elder, a journalist who began working on the script for his son's latest feature before David even went into production on his infamous debut, 1992's Alien 3, must come from the mouth of Fincher the Younger. But we can certainly pay attention to some of the lines Jack Fincher puts in the mouths of his characters, especially Gary Oldman as the brilliant alcohol-abusing scribe. When Mank delivers the first draft of his script to Orson Welles, he remarks, I built him a watertight narrative and a suggested destination. Where he takes it, that's his job. A sentiment David Fincher said in an interview with Vulture's Mark Harris, he feels is the greatest hope that a writer can have for his script. I'm curious, Josh, for your thoughts on the tightness of Make's narrative. And a quick side note here, referring back to the trickiness of assigning authorship, regular Fincher collaborator Eric Roth had some hand in crafting that narrative. I'm also curious what you think about where the director ultimately took that narrative. But let's go back to Paul in San Francisco. His idea to remedy our shortchanging of screenwriters was to devote future top five lists to their work. Top five meet cutes, movies about screenwriters, plot reveals, snappy dialogues, monologues, dramatic ironies, denouement, and endings. All good ideas for us to eventually use however we see fit while forgetting that we've ever even heard of Paul. But seriously, would Mank be a strong contender, Josh, to make any of those lists? There is a crucial near-falling-down-drunk extended monologue, and snappy dialogue and dramatic ironies do abound. And if not, what top five lists might Mank inspire you to create? Those are good ideas, Paul has. I don't know. <laughs> I'm tipping my hand here. How many of them Mank exemplifies very well, though I did enjoy Mank. I think anyone really who loves film and particularly old Hollywood and is familiar with a lot of the names in this movie will enjoy it on some level, but I don't think it's entirely successful in a lot of those areas, those top five topics. Maybe the one, you know, there's a dramatic irony here in this whole project, I think, and it's that a movie about a screenwriter and the efforts of screenwriting may have as its weakest point a screenplay, to my mind. And so Paul makes a fair point about our coverage of screenwriting, I think, maybe over the years. I don't know if we're going to be able to make up for it here in a discussion of Mank. And, and it's, you know, awkward and to say that, I think, because of the circumstances of the screenplay that you just laid out, that it's a personal project between father and son, that David Fincher's father is no longer with us. But I really did find that, boy, if Citizen Kane itself is kind of famous for being a, a puzzle narrative, right, something that we kind of piece together through reports and flashbacks, it seems, compared to Mank, at least to me, like a th conventional three-act narrative, because this thing is a jumble in terms of how it is constructed. It's similarly puzzle-like, but the pace of it moves so quickly. Um, we're kind of dropped into these scenes with that rapid dialogue, that snappy dialogue, and then we're jumping around in timelines. I think if you aren't familiar with a lot of the names here, names like Louis B. Mayer, David O'Selznick, you know, Orson Welles, Marion Davies, if those don't immediately— Irving Thalberg. 
Yeah. If those don't mean something to you immediately, I can see a viewer maybe being entertained by the look of the movie, which we should probably spend some time on, but kind of getting lost in what, you know, where, where are we going with this? And I think the ultimate problem for Mank isn't even logistical. It's not just that you'll get lost in the plot because you'll catch up eventually once you identify who's who. But it means the movie for me didn't really have a center. You know, there are a couple of things it could have been and been really strong in, in exploring that. But it's kind of moving in all of these different directions that it didn't have something it kept returning to that kind of held my interest or compelled me continually. And as far as, you know, I think that's it's interesting to say, what does a director bring to the movie once he's handed the screenplay? I think Fincher does what he can here to deliver overall a good film from the material. There's that line in Mank. They're talking at one point about a different script and somebody describes it as being director proof. If you remember that scene. Yeah. And I think Mank almost needed the opposite, right? It it needed a director who's screenplay proof, someone who could take this jumble of a narrative, ambitious, really ambitious narrative and, and make something cinematically compelling out of it. And I think Fincher a great talent, obviously. He's he's close enough to that where he does give us something compelling out of Mank, just maybe not as much as it could have been. Hmm. If I'm remembering that scene you're referencing correctly, and it is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, actually, and one, I think, where the dialogue is a real strength, Josh, the director in that case that they're pitching is former film spotting marathon subject Joseph von Sternberg with David Selznick there. But I really like Mank, and I liked it more than you, and I think it's because all the things you pointed out as being negatives are all positives for me. I think the script is a real key to the success here, and I guess the notion that it doesn't have a center, for me, that center, that puzzle, <laughs> like like Kane, I guess, and William Randolph Hearst there, it's Mank himself. And in terms of top five lists, this movie would encourage me to think about, or in this case, revisit. If we were going to redo our top five Gary Oldman performances, Mank would definitely make the Hmm. cut for me. Despite, you know, occasionally wallowing in self-pity as a character, he's someone who seems to try not to take anything too seriously. He's always deflecting things with jokes and one-liners. But Oldman really does give Mank a tragic weight, I think. And he talks like a character in a movie would. You know, it's a little bit stylized, but he he handles it so deftly, I think, that it it comes off as natural. It It's just how he talks. And we do get the reinforcement in the script that that's what endears him to a lot of other people, including to Hearst himself, is that he he enjoys just being kind of entertained by him and the things he's willing to say and express. And it's those things, it's the substance, but it's also the way he does it. There's a real danger to it and a volatility kind of to to Mank that Oldman really brings to the fore. And I think that's what people are attracted to and also a little bit simultaneously repelled by, but there's also a sensitivity to his mank. I would just say, I think he's, I think he's really fun to watch and I think he's really fun to listen to. I like the way this script rolls off his tongue. Yeah. I would say I was relieved by Oldman's performance and maybe, you know, that trailer that we had a little bit of fun with, which was very comedic and kind of over the top. 
put me in that position where I was wondering, is this going to be, you know, and we talked about this when we did Oldman performances, the different ranges he can be in. And a, a lot of what's a successful Gary Oldman performance is when he chooses to be big Gary Oldman in the right movie rather than in the wrong movie. Mm-hmm. And so I wondered what, how that might play out here. And he was, he thankfully to me, downpedals some of that while still being entertaining. I think you're right. I mean, there is good mm-hmm. dialogue here and Oldman does deliver it well, but man, he, he didn't strike me as the center, the beating heart of this movie, because the character as envisioned is, is kind of the drunken genius trope. And there's, there's not all that more here that we learn about Mankiewicz uh, as a person, I feel like, because we get a lot of sort of the the style and the charisma and in those dinner scenes where he is the guest that you want to have and Oldman pulls that off. But otherwise, it's he kind of registered to me as a boozy artifact, you know, and, and one of the problems with the film is is that in these present day, at least for the the movie's narrative scenes, he's surrounded by these two women characters. He has a nurse and he has a typist, and they're only there to kind of kind of prop up this stereotype, you know, of this this alcoholic who can, you know, oh, isn't it funny how he's drinking again? But he's going to pull it off at the last minute. And I don't think that's again, I don't think that's old Oldman's fault that he's stuck with that. I think it is a fault of of the character in the screenplay, and Oldman does make it perhaps as entertaining as he can, but it was never really the center for me. The one thing that it could have been maybe is, and this was one thing I did like about it that is interesting, is the political element here. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there are That's sections the of this film, the flashbacks that are involved the 1934 governor's race between Republican Frank Miriam and Upton Sinclair, the novelist. And, you know, we understand Mankiewicz is a supporter of Sinclair. He has to do this kind of on the down low, given, you know, the politics of the people he works for. And there are some interesting scenes to that. But it's, to me, maybe that could have been, if we had understood Mank as, you know, a political, maybe not activist, again, he couldn't be that in his position in Hollywood. But if that had been more a a part of his character instead of, what we're going to see in this flashback. And then maybe it'll apply in a later flashback, but it didn't really like open him up as a compelling character. I think the movie overall kind of has this nostalgic uh, and again, um, a little bit of a cliched view of this, you know, alcoholic old Hollywood screenwriter. Hmm. Yeah, I think you could argue maybe that that's one case where perhaps Fincher's going for some sense of authenticity. And rather than try to change or update who Mankiewicz was, let's go ahead and embrace the fact that maybe he actually was that writer and that kind of writer who who function under those conditions. There are certainly some artists who, who can manage to pull that off. But I think the elements you mentioned, Josh, in terms of the politics and those questions of moral responsibility, of personal responsibility, speaking up despite consequences, and seeing how Mank as a character kind of navigates that, where he is someone as a writer who I think is a little bit detached and is watching all of this play out and seeing how these figures in power use their power and abuse their power. And then at the same time, he does have to ultimately decide or pick and choose when he's going to get involved or in what way he's actually going to get involved. And that was all really compelling to me in terms of other top five lists. I guess I would also point to any list that we might do or revisit when it comes to biopics, especially biopics about writers or artists. And we can probably ultimately give 
Herman Mankiewicz and Wells in whatever ratio the credit for this and not David and Jack Fincher. But you know what? At least the Finchers here had the wisdom to follow Kane's example. I mean, how many times have we bemoaned biopics that bite off too much in an attempt to, I guess, cover the expanse of a life? They as a result, give us a really flimsy and unfulfilling portrait. And Oldman says it in the movie. I love this line. They provide the blueprint for both Kane and Mank. You cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours, Oldman says. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one. And for me, with humor and with wit and with sophistication and substance, that that is what Mank, the movie, does. So it, it solves biopic problem number one in a lot of ways. Number two, especially biopics about artists, how do you dramatize in a compelling way the writing process, whether it's writing a song or a script or a book or a play? And here you do what you really only can do, which is not really show any of the writing at all. We do see those flashbacks that inform what he's writing, the characters who populate the screenplay in various forms. And with all of their greatness in some cases and with all of their flaws in some cases, the humanity, really, we get, as we touched on, the political and social events and experiences that that compel all that humanity to come out. And I think the key word there for me is inform, not explain, which, you know, that's how flashbacks are usually utilized in biopics about artists. And I just think that here, the Finchers as the screenwriter and the director they're certainly smart enough and understand this well enough that the people and the events and these interactions can't be kind of reduced to one-to-one reflections in Mank's script. And I don't think they are. It's just all too complicated and too messy for that because that's real life. And art is informed by real life, but it's something altogether different. And Mank, the character we see, and certainly based on his work in Citizen Kane alone, along with Wells, they knew that. And as I said, I think the the Finchers do here. So is any of that convincing in so far, Josh? Not that you should like the movie more, but did you at least appreciate that it didn't fall into some of the biopic traps? You know, what's funny is I I never really thought of it as a biopic. And I think that's to its hmm. credit in, in the way yeah. you're talking about it. I, I, I thought of it more as like a slice of specific Hollywood history that we're getting to look in on from, you know, one figure's particular point of view. And again, that mm-hmm. that was compelling to me, you know, just knowing some of this history very, very mildly, very thinly and getting to see it imagined and fleshed out a little bit. Uh, just to touch back on the, the political element a little bit more, because, you know, we were, as listeners know, we were going to pair this with the social network uh, before we decided to spend more time on current films at the end of the year here. And it would have been interesting that one element in one of those flashbacks where Mank is listening to an ad on the radio and it's a pro Miriam radio spot. So for Mm -hmm. the, the Republican candidate and interviewing a woman who's claiming to be a voter who's scared of Sinclair's socialist positions. And Mank recognizes the voice as an actress he's yeah. worked with. And I mean, right, this is like the 30s equivalent of today's Twitter bots, right? Yeah, um, for sure. What's going on today. News, and so right? yeah. that is, that w- that's kind of like a fascinating link without having recently rewatched The Social Network, as we were going to do. I'm sure there are some connections there that that could be made, but but I think also made this, you know, timely for today, too. And that was definitely... An interesting tidbit there. Mm-hmm. I, you know, 
Oldman's performance, you're higher on than me. I did really like a couple of the other performances in this that I wanted to talk about. You mentioned Thalberg, the MGM exec. Not a big role, but Ferdinand Kingsley um, just had this sort of cool and calculated sense of strategy he brought to the job. You know, I think we see Mayer as this guy of, he's supposed to be the exec of, of emotion, you know? He was yeah, so tapped yeah. into the audience's emotion. And then you see Thalberg is like kind of this clinical guy who, even the politics, he's just looking at how is it going to play in the mm-hmm. studio's favor. Uh, Tom Burke, who I talked about last year in The Souvenir, uh, Joanna Hogg film that made my top 10, he's Wells. Now, this could be uh, you know, this is tricky territory here to play Orson Welles. And I think a good choice that the Finchers make is not to have too much Wells in this movie. Um, yeah. And and Burke, you know, he he does go for it. He's kind of this booming figure, but he doesn't try to take over the scenes or steal them from Mank. And so I thought he was no. really good. My favorite performance, um, I, I want to know what you thought about Amanda Seyfried as Marion Davies. Yeah. Loved because, her. yeah, I, I just thought, you know, she's been good in other stuff, but but maybe hasn't been in anything like this that I can think of before. And I thought she was very witty in some of that dialogue, but also had this wide-eyed quality as as Hearst's companion here. She It's almost like she's trapped, but she hasn't either become fully aware of it or admitted it to herself yet, right, mm-hmm. when we meet her in the flashbacks. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic. So that, that was probably my favorite performance in the film. No, I think it's a huge strength of the film, and I think it largely could have failed without that Marion Davies character being as formidable a presence as Seyfried is. I think she's magnetic here. She's someone who you can't fully take her seriously. That's, that's built into the character. She's someone who just by her very nature and existence is punching above her weight class. And I think that's true in terms of intellect with Mank. That has to be there. But he also has to be drawn to her by more than just her beauty, which really isn't an element that seems to be much of a factor for him. But it can't be that. It can't just be kind of wild curiosity. And it also has to be more than just the dirt that she can dish on Hearst in this lifestyle. There has to be something that he sees that's a kindred spirit in her and and someone who's willing to speak the truth and occasionally speak truth to power, even if that's usually when she's speaking out of turn. But Seyfried contains all of that. And I think their verbal sparring and I, I mean sparring here, not even mostly them being at odds with each other, just kind of the back and forth of it. It has that that really kind of fun old Hollywood clip to it. And you see them discovering each other and appreciating and developing respect for each other in a way that I thought was really exciting. And I will also say, without giving anything away, one of the best scenes, if not the best scene in the film, is one between them in the back of a limousine as it's strolling out through the exit of MGM studio. And it's one of those moments where a character shows really maybe at heart who they truly are and shows a side of themselves that had otherwise been hidden to the other character. And I think then that character's reaction to it is one of astonishment and, you know, disbelief to an extent. And I really love the way that Oldman expresses it. It's probably her story that he's interested in, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Just learning, like, how did she end up here (laughs) with with Hearst? What what does she feel about being there? Where does she want to go? And and as a storyteller, I can see that being a draw and attraction to him in addition to who she is 
as a person. And what do you what do you think about the look of this? Because I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if we mentioned it's in black and white cinematographer here. I know we talk too much about cinematography, <laughs> but Eric Messerschmidt is doing the work and it was um, at once kind of like enthralling to to do this time travel where you're kind mm-hmm. of being plopped back into a movie made to look like an older movie, but it's still kind of shiny new, <laughs> kind of shiny modern in a way. So I enjoyed it while at the same time kind of being aware of of how much had to go into, you know, making the movie look like this. So it was at mm-hmm. once something that was a piece of something I admired while I was distracted by it a little bit. I don't know if that makes sense, but what'd you make of it? Yeah, there's a little bit of fussiness to it, I suppose, in that you can see where they've done little tricks like added scratches to what is very clearly this crisp black and white photography to make it look, I suppose, old timey. But that didn't really distract me so much. I guess I was drawn more towards what I remember about Kane, I was telling you this before we started recording, I haven't actually seen the movie in over 20 years, so you're not going to get any kind of sequence analysis comparison between moments in Mank and in Citizen Kane from me. But there's certainly some homages in terms of the overall aesthetic, not just the black and white, but the deep focus and some of the low angles. I mean, there are, there are nods in the framing just overall to what... We saw from Greg Tolan and Orson Welles back on Citizen Kane, and I was drawn to that. I mean, again, it all kind of doesn't matter if I'm not overly caught up in the story and the characters and what the the people on screen are saying. But I enjoyed, if this is kind of a weak answer to your question, I enjoyed looking at them and the production design in addition to enjoying those performances and the dialogue. Yeah, that's fair. And and certainly the Hearst Castle <laughs> moments interiors yeah. bring you back to Xanadu and Citizen Kane, that's for sure. So Make is currently playing in limited release, and you can see it digitally exclusively on Netflix. Now, Josh, I'm going to surprise you with this. Our producer Sam doing some producing, wanting to liven things up a little bit. We're springing a surprise on you. Mm. On the spot, top five. Okay, oh, but boy. first... But first, hearing that you, it sounds like kind of begrudgingly liked Mank, certainly not going to be in your top tier of David Fincher films. Did you go to Letterboxd? Did you add it to the list? Where does this one rank for you? Oh, man. Um, Why don't you go ahead and I can look at that and I'll give you my answer shortly. Where does it rank for you? So 11 features and I have seen all of them and I actually did put Mank at number six. So there's that that top tier of films that includes, and I don't remember my exact order, but I kind of love equally The Social Network and Fight Club and Gone Girl and Seven, which actually I think I have at number one. And I know I'm leaving out something else that I love Zodiac. So there you go. That's a that's a really great top five David Fincher films. And I've got Mank just on the other side of that at six ahead of the game. And I really like the game. So maybe it's a little bit of recency bias, but I actually do have Mank at sixth. Yeah, this isn't too dramatic because I'll probably have it after Gone Girl at slot number eight. So because hmm. um, I, I liked it a little less than a little less than Gone Girl, even though I am in favor. I've got the, the only wild card for me, really. Fight Club is at number one. Benjamin Button has my Hmm. number two slot for Fincher, which I know people will think is insane. Um, But yeah, the others are pretty familiar. Three, Panic Room, four, Zodiac, five, Social Network. So yeah, Mank, not challenging any of those, that's for sure. Hmm. Well, 
your placement of the curious case of Benjamin Button may provide us with some good fodder if, in fact, next year we follow up our Christopher Nolan overview with a David Fincher overview, and you can convince all of us what the fuss should be about with that film. I have it much lower. I'm pretty sure I have it at nine out of 11, and I didn't hate it. I actually think I gave it a positive review, but just slightly, Josh. So not as enthusiastic you it, as you. You gave it a mank. I think you gave it a mank. Yeah, yeah. I gave it a Josh Mank review, and Kate Blanchett, I recall, was a big part of that. So just for kicks, you got the list in front of you. If someone said you had to do it, you had to name five performances, they don't even have to be in order. When you look at Fincher's filmography, what are the roles and what are the performances that really stand out to you? Okay, yeah, let's look at this list. Well, the obvious one is uh, Pitt in Fight Club, right? And yeah. then uh, let's see. I think Jake Gyllenhaal in Zodiac, though I do wonder, hmm. even though I, I you know, thought he was good, am I retroactively putting how good Jake Gyllenhaal has been even right. since then onto Zodiac? I don't know, but I'll say that for now. I really like Jodie Foster in Panic Room. You know, just kind of elevates that, in as does Fincher in his filmmaking, um, but from kind of a, a genre thriller into something more. Sigourney Weaver doing some, you know, Alien 3, maybe not one of his most loved films, but doing something really interesting with that part that she had obviously at that point clearly made her own. So what does that give me? Four? I think I'm going to have to go with someone either. Oh, no, I'm going to have to go with Eisenberg. Speaking of the social network, yeah. he'll have to fill the five out for me. OK, we have a couple overlaps there because I'd also put Brad Pitt from Fight Club in there and I would put Jesse Eisenberg from the social network. I'd also at least have to think about I've really come around on Andrew Garfield in the social network, but he'd probably be just outside my top five. I mentioned her, Kate Blanchett, even though in a supporting role for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Josh might be in my top five. Oldman, I'd consider. Pike, Rosamund Pike from Gone Girl, I would definitely throw into the mix. And my final one would be Morgan Freeman. I'd have to go back to what is still my favorite David Fincher movie, his breakout movie, Seven, his performance as Detective Somerset alongside Brad Pitt there. So that was our first impromptu top five list. I, I think we did that in two minutes. I mean, yeah, let, I, we should just do that's this the all idea. the time. All the <laughs> that's, time. Why that's not? how they used to be in the old days, right? That's more or less true. <laughs> All right. Well, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, that's another highly anticipated Netflix title. It's coming to the service on December 18. We'll have our review next, plus an edition of Massacre Theater that will surely be worthy of mention alongside the likes of Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman. Stay with us. We're down in South in Alabama. I got a friend called Samson Sammy. Who's crazy about all the ladies dancing? Black bottom stars and the new baby princess. The other night at a well affair. Your hearing is deteriorating rapidly. We'll come back. Till then, Lou, we just keep going, okay? No. Lou, no. let's play tomorrow. Let's see what it's like, okay? I'm gonna be like a click track. You can play to me. 
That's Riz Ahmed in the trailer for Sound of Metal, which comes exclusively to Amazon Prime this weekend. It's a title that's come up a couple of times this year, one we were looking forward to, probably one you were especially looking forward to, Adam. Just a couple of weeks ago on our fall movie preview, you asked this question. Will Zappa be the rousing, competently made 70s rock god exploration that the Bowie biopic Stardust surely will not be? Or will I have to seek my music fix in Sound of Metal? Sound of Metal stars Ahmed as a rock drummer who begins to lose his hearing. It is the feature debut for director Darius Martyr. That means it might be worthy of golden brick consideration, Adam. I know you've seen it now. Mm -hmm. Would that be accurate? Well, first, I do want to note that I also saw Zappa, and I think it's really good. Certainly a little bit rousing and undoubtedly competently made by Alex Winter. So a recommendation there. But I also definitely got my music fix in Sound of Metal, even though the music part of it isn't really what the story is about. And I think we will probably, or at least I will, talk more as we get into the end of year award season about the performances here. Not only Riz Ahmed, but someone I had never seen on screen before. Maybe a couple credits to his name, an actor named Paul Racy, who plays, I guess, kind of his his counselor and his caretaker after Ahmed's character Ruben does go deaf and has to find a place really to be taught how to exist in a world as a deaf man. And that performance by Paul Racy was one that I think is among my favorite of the year, Josh, in a supporting role. And Sound of Metal is definitely golden brick material. What I will say is it takes a really bold approach in terms of its overall artistic design and certainly in terms of its sound design, which is from the very beginning, it orients itself around the perspective of Ahmed. There are instances of it that orient you as a viewer from a sort of objective point of view. This is what an outsider might be experiencing or seeing play out. But for the most part, in a way that I think for some viewers could be jarring, it was even jarring or difficult at times for me. For the most part, you are always experiencing the world as Riz Ahmed's character Ruben experiences mm-hmm. the world. And so if you're someone who's behind a drum set and you're pounding away while his girlfriend and collaborator as a musician is at the front of the stage and she's performing, we really only hear her kind of wailing and the sound of her instrument the way he would hear it behind the drum set. And similarly then, as he starts to lose his hearing and then as he loses it completely, there are many scenes that play out completely without sound where we only do experience it as viewers as he is in that moment. And I do think it really pays off here. So probably more to say, and there will be more to come on Sound of Metal here in the next month or so. But for now, I definitely want to recommend it I think it's absolutely a Golden Brick nominee or should be on the short list. I know that we did that special here just over Thanksgiving and had a bunch of titles already we were throwing into the mix. Sound of Metal definitely belongs there. I'm curious what you and listeners think. It's playing exclusively on Amazon Prime this weekend. And for what it's worth, Zappa also available now on Amazon Prime. So to help me determine how far on my movies to see list here in the mad rush, how much metal? 
is in Sound of Metal because, you know, not not my favorite music genre. It wasn't like you. wasn't in a high school band doing metal covers. <laughs> Am I going to be okay during this? Well, this is, for better or worse, Josh, true metal, too. This isn't the hair metal that I was into and played okay. back when I was in a band and blowing <laughs> out my my eardrums. It's, it's true metal. It's pretty hardcore, but I would say you can definitely handle it. Pretty okay. sporadic. It it's it's a way quieter film than you might imagine, and I guess that's that's ultimately my point, right? Because yeah, it as the world the sound becomes design. very yeah. yeah, as it becomes very quiet for him, it becomes very quiet for us as well as viewers. Next week on the show, we will discuss another highly anticipated 2020 film. It's Nomadland, director Chloe Zhao's follow up to 2018's The Writer, a Golden Brick finalist. That year, it stars the great Francis McDormand. This is a movie, Josh, that opens in limited release this weekend, so listeners will have a chance to see it before we discuss it, though there's no word as of now when it will be available to watch on digital. So you will have to get out to some kind of theatrical setting to take in Nomadland at this point. Have you had a chance to watch it yet? No, I'm I'm holding out to, we were kind of discussing that before we got on. How soon do we want to watch something before we're going to talk about it? Because we want mm-hmm. it to be fresh, right? But we don't want to be unprepared either. So I'm probably going to do it this weekend. I figure that's the good sweet spot. Okay. Well, we pulled an audible last week live here on the show. I decided to throw everything into chaos and suggest that instead of doing a 10th anniversary sacred cow look at the social network, there were too many new movies we had to fit in. And that's why we're going to get to Ma Rainey here in a second. Similarly, there was an idea planned by us, along with our producer, Sam, over a month ago to talk about Nomadland and then devote a top five to its star, Francis McDormand, and do our top five favorite Francis McDormand performances. I still really want to do that top five. I think it would be a lot of fun. And yet there is so much out or coming out worth talking about, including the Steve McQueen films. I've seen two of those five, the small axe movies, and I really am eager to talk about them. So I don't know. I'm trying to cause more chaos, Josh. Yeah, and and you convinced me last week, but I'm a little more invested in the Francis McDormand performances list than I was in a social network revisit. I mean, partly I like getting back to a top five. It's been a little while, especially since we did a, a proper top five like this. Also, I'll admit I've already done a little bit of homework, so I wouldn't want that to mm. go wasted mm. for this one. And she deserves it. I mean, McDormand deserves it. And I don't know. I'd like to think there are going to be many instances of her getting showcase roles in the next couple of years or more, but you never know. So it seems like the occasion mm. to do it. So so I, I, I lean towards sticking with this one this time. No, that's, you know, that's that's totally fine going against my wishes here. I'll just put uh, three billboards at number one. Let me pencil that in. Hey, that should be hey, fun. That'll that only hurts you, not me. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, we'll have results from the current film spotting poll as well. A highly contentious Christmas movie death match. Oh, boy. The generations at war, Josh. And you're partly <laughs> to blame. You're you're fanning the flames. Well, this ridiculousness about Home Alone has to stop. Has well, I'm with to you there. Stop. <laughs> I don't think it's. I don't we, think it's winning though, right? I mean, the boring one is winning. Your choice is winning. Yeah, that's right. I'm the boring one, of course. Like the majority of our listeners, we chose one Christmas movie from each decade, going back to the 40s. Your options were the 1940s, It's a Wonderful Life, 50s, White Christmas, 60s, Josh's Beloved, A Charlie Brown Christmas, which I haven't seen since the 80s. I'm sure it is. 1970s, Rankin and Bass's Santa Claus is Coming to Town. 1980s, It's a Christmas Story. The 90s, there's Home Alone. And 2000s, you've got Elf. This is a death match, so there's no other option. 
Basically, you have to pick one and all the other ones are going to disappear for eternity. The two titles that listeners seem most upset about us leaving out, Josh, are, I'll read Alex Martin's comments, I abstain, no Christmas vacation, shame on you. <laughs> valid. That's very valid, Alex. I, I think one thing Sam might have been thinking of is that 1989 is when Christmas Vacation came out. So only one year before the 90s mm. pick we offered, Home Alone. Maybe those are just a little too close together there. Yeah, 1993, we got a Muppet Christmas Carol, which I'm with you, Josh. It it definitely should be in there instead of Home Alone. Matt Mitchell had this comment, though. You have spared the Muppet Christmas Carol from this death match, a decision for which the world should be eternally grateful. And we just need to point out that that's not the way it works, Matt. Just because we no. left it off, no. you know, doesn't mean that it's that it's exempt. There's only one 90s holiday movie that's still going to survive if you pick it, and it's Home Alone. So just think about that, everybody, before you click. We kind of doomed a Muppet Christmas Carol by not making it an option, essentially. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. That Christmas movie death match is available now at filmspotting.net. We also love to give away free things here at Filmspotting. Dreamland is a new thriller from Paramount starring Margot Robbie as a fugitive bank robber and Finn Cole as a young man torn between claiming the bounty on her head and his growing attraction to the seductive criminal. It's available to buy or rent now. It's also playing in select theaters. To get a free digital download code, we asked you simply to write in and tell us your favorite Margot Robbie performance. We have five winners, Josh, chosen at random, and they are... Jeremy from Iowa City. He said her best is Wolf of Wall Street. Three winners here with the same choice. Adam Graff in Grand Rapids, Michigan. David Fogel and Deborah. She's in D.C. They all said I, Tanya. And then Aiden Mulshine also picked I, Tanya, but gave a shout out to her cameo in The Big Short. Two movies, I Adore the Big Short and The Wolf of Wall Street, much to your chagrin, Josh, getting love here in this giveaway. Thank you to everyone who entered, and congrats to our winners. We will get you out that free digital download code. Again, Dreamland is available to buy or rent now. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's part one of The Manking of Kane. It's their double feature, of course, pairing Mank with Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. How... Does the chief of police of the pun police, Josh Larson, mm. feel about this one? Yes. Well, there is an exception. I think I've mentioned before. Yeah, the title in, exception? In headlines, you know, like headlines. in written headlines. So, yeah, if this if this comes up in my podcast feed, little chuckle. I like it. <laughs> when someone says it or in casual conversation, yeah. that's that's when I get the heebie-jeebies. Okay. Well, success right there. They, they earned a reprieve. They're not yes. going to go to the... <laughs> Pun prison put there by Josh Larson. Congrats, Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Tasha Robinson. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts and more information is available at nextpictureshow.net. We also wanted to highlight one way that you can support us here on Film Spotting as we're heading into the holidays. Join the Film Spotting family. It's such a festive time of year. Become part of this great community over on Patreon. For a mere $5 a month, you get ad-free episodes, you get early downloads, a merch discount. You get monthly bonus episodes, Josh, and we've touched on this recently. We've had a couple really good ones, and it just proves why our listeners are smarter than us in both cases— they were kind of near the bottom of the options for the two of us. And including Sam, we thought, you know, formative political movies in November. Nobody needs more politics right now. Mm -hmm. And then in December, Turkeys We Love. It was kind of like 
maybe there's just really not going to be enough meat on the bone there. Pun totally intended, mm, Josh. Yeah. Great. That was great. And yet we we went for it and they ended up being, we thought, really good shows. And based on the feedback we've gotten, our listeners agree. So, you know, beyond whatever you're getting here from us every week on the show, if you do want some additional content and it turns out it seems to be additional good content, then support us over on Patreon and become part of the family. If we haven't convinced you, we're going to play a voicemail from a listener who was particularly moved by our top five turkeys we love. Hey, guys, this is uh, Bryce from Toronto calling a uh, family member and quite possibly the greatest fan of or the, the biggest fan rather of the show. I just wanted to um, leave you a voicemail regarding your turkeys. We love episode. I mean, you guys are both so good. And I thought I was 51 percent uh, team Josh and maybe I still am. But Adam, I just had to leave a voicemail to tell you uh, what a performance uh, you you put on, frankly, Uh, what a moving performance you put on for me and probably for many other film lovers who are about the same age, kind of that, you know, mid to late 40s. Just the the the, the scene that you painted of, of watching and rewatching Eddie and the Cruisers, you know, with your friend and how it influenced your life outside of the movie and sort of shaped your attitude towards music and, and just the effect that it had upon you. I it was like someone was moving furniture in, in inside of my chest. I mean, I know how much I love movies. That's why I love your show so much. But it just connected me to a very vulnerable and and sincere um, place deep with inside me uh, where film exists and where, like your experience, is so much about my worldview and the the things that I have spent time with and the things that I love. And and, uh, it comes from my experience with movies uh, as a young person and not just movies, but the the manner in which I interacted with the medium watching those favorite movies over and over and, and, and over again, uh, not really understanding why and just what a profound impact that has had on me and my worldview and, uh, and, and the things that I love and adore. So I just wanted to give you a tip of the hat. It was just an absolutely fantastic show and you really shone in that and, and brought to life for me all over again, why the movies mean so much to me and where that love comes from. Thank you. Words and music, Bryce. Words and music. Eddie lives forever. Thank you for the kind words there in that voicemail. Indeed. That was sweet, Bryce. I, I got to say, I appreciate the, you know, he's 51%, I think he said, Team Josh. But really, if Eddie mm. and the Cruiser speaks to your soul, Bryce, I'm going to yeah. encourage you. You should just move on over. You'll, yeah, you'll, get be, the t-shirt. you'll, be, you'll be much happier. <laughs> this month. We're doing another one that was near the bottom of the list, if not at the bottom for us at first glance. So we'll see if it's a turkey, Josh, to use some bowling parlance, movie directors doing TV. We're talking about Fincher. I loved his work on Mindhunter, which was on Netflix and alas, seems to be no more. So I think the hook here is really thinking about some of our favorite directors who maybe haven't made the transition to TV. And if they don't ever do it, that's fine. But we wouldn't mind seeing them do it. So there's actually a lot to consider there, which I have not spent any time on yet. I'm guessing you haven't either, but we'll have to make time because that show is going to be published in a few weeks here. Yeah, a bunch of angles we could take on that. Definitely not going to just do, here's my five favorite directors who haven't done TV. But yeah, we'll we'll put a little more thought into that and, and have some fun. 
you also get to participate in exclusive events like our monthly trivia spotting. This one's coming up Friday, December 11th. We're calling it Trivia Spotting 5 Subsequent Movie Film Trivia Game, and it is sold out. Thank you to our family members. It's sold out very quickly. We did offer this time some new tickets, which we're calling spectator tickets. And these are for listeners who had said, you know what? I'm really curious. I want to partake in the community feel and the atmosphere, and I want to hear the Q&A with us and with our guests, but I'm a little hesitant to be put on the spot, which... We've also tried to allay those fears a little bit. You're never really put on the spot. It's really no. low-key movie trivia, right? And you're you've on got a team. group. You're on a team, and someone there is going to be able to probably bail you out most of the time. But if you are a little bit hesitant or have any social anxiety, but you still want to participate, we offered 20 tickets at a cheaper price this time, again, called Spectator Tickets. And as of this taping, I think there's five left, and we may even open those up. If our family members don't take them, we might open them up to the general listening audience and i'm excited to see how that goes i am thrilled to hear that people are taking us up on that not only because we'll get to see them they'll get to be a part of it but i can bring this back to my family i got so much crap when i mentioned we were doing this a lot of eye rolls from the younger ones adam people are paying to watch you guys play trivia come Uh on but now i can say yes they are and we're going to have fun and you're not allowed to watch how come, how come we get respect everywhere but our own houses? Could that be why we do this, Adam? <laughs> I think that's a very telling comment, Josh. We want <laughs> to thank some of our new patrons this week. James Cust, Brian Stein, Jonathan Skufka, J.P. Lopes, Robert Bowman, John Hayes, all new family members in the past week. Patreon.com slash filmspotting is where you can learn more and sign up. Let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A few weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. Winston, you were thinking that my face is old and tired. That while I talk of power, I'm unable to prevent the decay of my own body. But the individual is only a cell, Winston. And the weariness of the cell is the vigor of the organism. Why? It's possible. Hatred and fear have no life. Why is hate less vital than love? I don't know. But somehow you'll fail. Something will defeat you. Life will defeat you. That was John Hurt and Richard Burton in 1984's 1984, written by Michael Radford, adapted from the novel by George Orwell. Radford, also the director there. Also on that show, along with that massacre, we had our final 8 from 84 review. We talked about Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise, and we shared our 8 from 84 awards. I'm going to say it because it's so fun to say, the Quizak Hatteracks. <laughs> Please do. So why, why, Josh, did we... Do that scene from 1984? Well, we've kind of given you the answer. Trip Burton in Woodridge, Illinois says, I've never seen the movie, but I would be a horrible English teacher if I didn't know this week's Massacre Theater was 1984. As for connections, besides the whole show being devoted to the movie Year 84, you have John Hurt, who would be so memorable in Stranger Than Paradise director Jim Jarmusch's Only Lovers Left Alive. And, of course... The politics of our current time feeling so freaking Orwellian. Every year that I teach the book, my students find it scarier and scarier. 
Here's Ian Farmer from Golden, Colorado. This is one of those movies I saw way too young, and it subsequently boosted my ego for years to come. I watched it again years later and was embarrassed by my previous love. Happy Mm. it's finally paying off now. Jeff from L.A. says George Orwell made sure that the year 1984 would strike fear and terror into the hearts of all who heard its numerals mention a fate 2020 is likely to share. I think he's right. PTSD shudders whenever we hear 2020 in the years ahead. (laughs) We did not get many entries, though, Josh. So maybe my Richard Burton impersonation, my very soothing impersonation, just put them to sleep (laughs) rather than stimulated them at all to recognize the scene or enter. Or maybe like Trip, English teachers who definitely know the source material, they've never seen the movie. We think there are a lot of those folks out there. We did not get many entries, Josh. So... You're going to have a lot of room in the film spotting hat to pick out a winner. Who do you got? You're still a winner to us, Zach. Zach Stetson from New York, New York. Zach Stetson, I do want to point out, Josh, I noticed today, again, there were so few entries that I could very easily eyeball everyone who entered. (laughs) Zach, I think, has been playing Massacre Theater since at least 2008. Wow. 12 years of entries. Pretty sure he's never won. And there you go. Happy holidays in advance. Indeed. See, stick with it. You'll win one day. There you go. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. Broadsheet journalists have described my impressions as stunningly accurate. Well, they're wrong. I've not heard your Michael Caine, but I assume it would be something along the lines of, my name's Michael Caine. That is where you are so wrong. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theatre, one where we probably don't need to give any obvious hints, but I'm going to help our audience anyway, Josh, because this is a title that has some connection to this week's show. But beyond that, it also has a connection to our upcoming film spotting madness. I'll be a little bit vague here. And for people who aren't aware, I won't say the decade that Mm. we're going to focus on. But when we posted the shortlist on Letterboxd of the hundred or so films that we were considering to whittle down to this upcoming film spotting madness, There were a fair number of people who couldn't believe we left off this movie. Okay. I think you gave way too many clues there, but that's all right. Okay. We had low entries last time, so so maybe we'll get a ton this time. That's Uh, it. Really, I wasn't feeling loved enough. (laughs) Uh, uh, The fact that you usually play the woman, it's going to pay off for you this time because you get a nice little monologue here. Really, really juicy. Yes. I, of course, will not do it justice, but we're going to give it a go. Nevertheless, you started off, so I'll give you the action. Are you ready? Yes. And action. It's good to see you, sweetheart. You contemptible pig. I remain celibate for you. I stood at the back of a cathedral in celibacy for you. With 300 friends and relatives in attendance, my uncle hired the best Romanian caterers in the state. To obtain the seven limousines for the wedding party, my father used up his last favors with Mad Pete Trello. So for me, For my mother, my grandmother, my father, my uncle, and for the common good, I must now kill you and your brother. Oh, please don't kill us. Please, please don't kill us. You know I love you, baby. And And scene. scene. (laughs) I think that was one of your better performances, Josh. Talk about big shoes. I'm impressed. Oh, thank you. And and here comes the family crashing into the closet to make sure I'm okay. Crashing also maybe appropriate to this film. There's a couple mm. of crashes. Mm-hmm. 
hints galore. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, December 14th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. Viola Davis there as legendary blues singer Ma Rainey in the opening scene from Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Currently out in limited release, it comes exclusively to Netflix on the 18th of this month, so a little bit of an early review here. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is an adaptation of the 1982 Tony-nominated play by August Wilson, along with Fences. It's part of Wilson's 10-play Pittsburgh cycle, which chronicles African-American life in the 20th century. We should note this particular film and this play set in in Chicago in the 1920s. Ma Rainey takes place over the course of a single afternoon recording session where tensions arise between Ma Rainey and her manager and the session's producer, both of whom are white, and members of her band, namely Chadwick Boseman's ambitious trumpet player, Levy. It's directed by veteran Broadway director George C. Wolf. Josh, we alluded to this at the top of the show, maybe coming in, thought that this was really going to be the Viola Davis show, but I know we were all hoping in what is tragically Chadwick Boseman's last performance, that it would be a fitting swan song. Did you think it was? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's just fantastic in this, as is she. He's and amazing. I think maybe we can agree. Let's let's not spend any time saying who's quote unquote better. I understand yeah. the instinct because no point. <laughs> the whole thing is set up as a showdown, right? These two characters butt heads. Mm-hmm. Ma, Ma like holds court. It's her world. She's built it and he's a bit player in it, but he's reaching for more. And so they kind of as characters, there's a showdown as supreme acting talents. I can see why mm-hmm. you might think of it as a showdown, but they really both just serve the material so brilliantly here. They, they don't have a lot of scenes together, actually, when you think back no. about it. Um, she's mostly in the actual recording studio, and Levy spends a lot of time downstairs in the rehearsal space with uh, his bandmates. They both just own their individual scenes, though. I mean, that's without mm-hmm. a doubt. And Bozeman, to go back to him, you know, I haven't seen everything he's done. I, did you see Get On Up? Mm-hmm. You did. Yeah, okay, I so watched maybe... it after he passed, actually, just okay. so I could have that reference point. Good. Maybe you can speak to this, too, because for me, there was like a devilishness to him that I had not really seen, at least this full force before, as Levy, because he's a guy who's, I think of Bozeman's so many of his performances as being uh, regally still and controlled. And Levy is a guy, the ambition is just like shooting out of him, right? And and he's charming because of that at first, even as he's being insulting. The other members in the band who are all great, played by Coleman Domingo, Michael Potts, mm-hmm. and Glenn Turman from Cooley High. We talked about Glenn Turman back in our Black Exploitation yeah. Marathon. He's great here. But Levy is rude to them. He's disrespectful. So he's not a guy you necessarily like, except he is clearly talented as a musician and he does have a level of charm but then he also takes a turn where that ambition becomes threatening and we learn more about him and realize that he's also you know suffered psychologically and that makes him somewhat dangerous this was just not only a strong performance from Bozeman but one that to me to my experience of him was uh, doing some different things yeah for sure me as well I do think his performance as James Brown is 
a touch point, or it's at least one that I was thinking about a little bit as I watched his character Levy here, but they are very different performances as well. They're very different characters. Namely, there is a charisma to both, certainly, but it's a different kind of charisma. There's something about his brown that matches probably appropriately who he was in real life. There's a bit of a sullenness and someone who is more explicitly outwardly mean. And I think mm. it's it's interesting watching his take here on Levy that you see someone who is constantly insulting those other bandmates that you mentioned. And yet it's never as if they really turn on him and start to go back at him or express their hatred or disdain for him. There is something likable about yeah. this yeah, yeah. man, right? This, this character Levy. And just to go back a little bit in setting up this dichotomy here, the Oscar part of it is what it is. The politics of the Oscars isn't something we give much time to here on the show or outside of it. But when I saw a couple of headlines a while back about Bozeman being put up by the studio for lead actor, not supporting, not knowing anything at all really about the play. I haven't seen it. I haven't read it or the movie or this character he's portraying. I guess I immediately got a little bit cynical and wondered if there was some kind of calculation there that really wasn't about the size or the substance of the role. This being Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, I thought, well, it's it's Viola Davis's film and maybe Bozeman is playing someone who's truly more of a supporting character. So why why are they even messing with this? Well, that ensemble you mentioned, the entire ensemble, there's other characters as well that we could point to. They get their moments and they're really good. But this is a two hander. And yeah. the way that Levy wants to stand on equal artistic ground with Ma, Bozeman certainly does here. He does have to be. Incredibly charismatic, as we said, there has to be a fire to the performance, a cockiness, a conviction. He's an instigator. He, he's not going to wait for anyone or for anything to come to him. He's going to take it. And Bozeman on those counts naturally delivers. But there is, Josh, as you alluded to, so much more depth to the character and the performance. And I, I want to be careful here to not in any way get trite or to try to minimize the loss when he passed. But in terms of a swan song that showcases the full range of an actor's talents, this for me was really a gift to watch. I think it's his best performance of the ones I've seen. And, and it builds on his legacy playing a black man who has all the scars of a past and present dominated by racism. And yet he's, he's trying to forge a new path single-handedly. He's not going to accept the world and his place in it as it is, but just through sheer determination, through willpower and through talent, he's going to make, he's going to make the world he wants. And at times it might be misguided and maybe it's not even going to play out the way that he hopes it does, but he's going to try to bend the world to him. And there are so many important moments in this film and great, performance moments but that that monologue he has that that kind of testimony the the story of his mother and father and how he engages with the white man now because of those past experiences i think it's five minutes long i went back and watched it today josh and there's maybe only five cuts six at the most really purposeful cuts and we'll talk about that a little bit more wolf and the direction and the approach to kind of the rhythm of the camera work and editing, but for the most part, the camera is just trained on Bozeman and largely in close-up. And there's a line he has early in the monologue where he's quoting his father. It kind of starts a little bit like he's he's orating a tale. And then he says, 
quoting his father, take care of your mama while I'm gone. And the way Bozeman says the line gone, it's like all of the breath just comes completely out of him. In that moment, it goes from being a story he's telling to now he's completely reliving it. He's, mm-hmm. he's back there in that moment, that, that kind of trail off of, of the breath. And I, I rewatched, as I said, that five minutes today, and I just sort of had to sit for a while and decompress after it. That's the power of the writing. That's the power of the performance. I was eight years old when a gang of white men is coming to my daddy's house and have to do with my mama any way they want. Who's living in Jefferson County, about eight miles outside of Natchez. My daddy's name was Memphis, Memphis Lee Green. Had him near 50 acres of good farming land. I'm talking good land. Grow anything you want. You know, going off of shares and bought this land for Mr. Halley's widow woman after he done passed on. Folks called him an uppity because he done saved and borrowed the way he could buy this land and be independent. It was coming on planting time. And my daddy went into Natchez to get him some seed and fertilizer. Called me, say, Levy, you the man of the house now. Take care of your mama while I'm gone. I went with a little boy, eight years old. Yeah, I mean, we can't get past the richness of the material that we're getting here right in the original play. But Bozeman in that scene, it encompasses the entire performance in those five or so minutes because we get Mm -hmm. him. He's responding. It starts because he's responding to being accused by the others of sucking up to the white producer, right? Because he's trying to get the producer to, to buy some songs he's written. And... He is charming in that moment to the producer. He takes that charm, turns it back on those accusing him, shows them how it's a weapon, how it's a facade, shows Mm -hmm. them where the story you mentioned is rooted in where he learned, how he learned to put up that facade. But also we see the years of anger that have built up while he's been doing that in the little moments like you talked about with the breath. And I think, you know, this is something that Davis does as well in her performance. Both of them, they're giving stage performances to a degree. They each get monologues, lengthy monologues, mm-hmm. where you, you're you immediately reminded that this is a stage play. And they perform them as you might on a stage. But they also know, you mentioned the camera work, that when Wolf's camera comes close, both of them have done enough film work at this point that they know... All we need right here is, as you said, a little Mm -hmm. breath, a little tick, a little facial gesture, a blink. And that's going to connect with the audience. That's not only going to put the character in the past, as you were describing, but it's going to take the audience with them to the past. And I think that's what's really remarkable about both of these performances is that they're big in ways that they have to be coming from stage material, right? They're going to have to project. They're also- And for the characters. Exactly. These characters are performers. This is how they live. Mm -hmm. And and maybe this is where we can move over to Viola Davis because she, I mean, if we ever did a top five formidable film characters, Ma would have to be at the top because she's at the height of her fame here. She makes everyone wait at this studio for her. Everything she does is a power play, right? Every Mm -hmm. move she makes because she knows that as- a black woman in this time, in this day, all she has is her voice. And once yeah. they've got that down on the record, she's lost her power. She, it's, it's like this tension between her and everyone else there because she's in charge until they take something from her. Mm-hmm. And so even though she is equally rude and dismissive to them, to her bandmates sometimes, she can also be loving. I like the, the whole 
subplot with her nephew who's a stutterer, but she wants to have him open up one of the recordings, nevertheless, mm-hmm. the the affection she shows for him. But mostly she's bulldozing her way through this movie. And at the same time, Davis, because she gives us those more subtle moments, lets us recognize that all of this too is rooted in pain. Different pain than Levy's. That's but absolutely pain, sorrow. We don't get a monologue where she speaks to that. I think that's true to her character. She is not someone who would ever tell you her story because she's singing it. And and she's singing it not only in songs that directly address it, but even in these seemingly frivolous blues songs, it's the music itself that is capturing that experience. So so it's just, yeah. a, you know, both these performances are so brilliantly modulated and when to just go with that stage element and when to back off because we are in a movie. Reverend was out here. I know they ain't rehearsing Levy's Black Bottom. I know I ain't in there. Ma, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Levy's version of that song, it really picks it up. I ain't starting Levy nothing. I know what he done to that song. I don't like to sing it that way. I'm doing it the old way. That's why I brought my nephew in here to do the voice intro. Well, that's what people want now, Ma. They want something they can dance to. Levy's arrangement gives the people what they want. It makes them excited. It makes them forget about their troubles. I don't care what you say, honey. Levy ain't messing up my song. Now, if he got what the people want, let him take it somewhere else. I'm singing my Rainey song. I ain't singing no Levy song. Now, that's all there is to it. Davis has to obviously be a force. She's insistent. She's stubborn. You said rude. She's mean. She's diva-ish at times. And all of that has to come through without it feeling forced or fake. It has to feel like that's who she is fundamentally, right? Or else it yeah. doesn't have the the power that it needs to have. But Davis does absolutely somehow clue you in at the same time that there's an element of performance even to that. That there is a Ma Rainey persona. But mm-hmm. underneath that persona is a woman who loves who feels jealousy and who feels pain and who's insecure and needs attention and needs reinforcement. That's it. She needs. She needs, but she's someone who can't show neediness to the world. And there's a a moment in a showdown before she even gets to the studio with a white police officer and there's a crowd. So just like on stage, there's a group of people who are watching and she can't back down, but the police officer can't back down either. And when you see her stand defiantly in the road and yell back at that white cop and then there's this pause For me watching it outside, there's a brick wall, right? She's just all defiance. But inside, Davis somehow projects that what she's really feeling is, please don't call my bluff, please. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. there's there's that that same sense of kind of insecurity and knowing that she is performing and and maybe she's not being convincing enough, at least as I see it. So the fact that the the performance can have that kind of, you know, range to it is is really remarkable. And I think that does get back to what you were saying in terms of the adaptation and modulating the performances. I think Wolf has really done a wonderful job here of matching the form and content because the central conflict, if you you really reduce it to kind of what the problem is between Ma and her group and Levy, it's, it's a matter of style. And I, I don't mean one wants to be more flamboyant as a player or personality, even though there is that element there to Levy's character, but it's style insofar as how you approach playing music. And Ma wants to keep playing her music, right? Slow, down and dirty Delta Blues. Mm-hmm. And Levy 
as he says at one point, I don't want to play that jug band stuff anymore. I want to play real music. I want to play fast, my tempo. I want to pick it up. And he wants to get people's attention and get them excited. He he wants to play more notes and he wants to play faster. And Wolf matches his direction to their tempos, right? Like it, it's not just how they they perform when they're playing or singing. It's how they move. It's how they talk. Bozeman is almost always in motion down in that band room. He's spitting fire. The camera pace and editing rhythm are a little quicker with him. There's there's almost a kind of gravitational pull when he's in any room. But the same thing with Ma and and Davis, only it's the opposite. And it, it's probably even more pronounced because of, of Davis's gravitas and also Ma's position of power. And I know Davis also did, from what I read somewhere, she put on some extra weight for this performance as well. And And she uses it, right? Because yeah. she talks a little slower. She certainly talks slower than Levy. She reacts in a completely different way. She uses pauses and she relies on looks to convey what she's feeling in contrast again to Levy and that kind of machine gun approach and just the way she meticulously moves around the studio. I, I was thinking about it today, Josh, a little bit like Muhammad Ali facing off against Sonny Liston, right? Mm. The difference in style, the difference in approach where you've got that young, brash boxer with with all the moves and is lightning quick in the ring. And then Sonny Liston just kind of moving forward, you know, almost like a shark, just, just determined to take down whatever is in front of him. That's a little bit like what these two performances are when they do finally face off with each other. And the whole conceit here is that it's a play about, (laughs) about recording an album. That's, that's not really about the recording at all, right? It's about the waiting. And I think here, Wolf, and I'm going to give credit to the screenwriter who adapted this, Ruben Santiago Hudson, they, by matching the the tempo of the performances to the the overall aesthetic here, they, they make it all a really dynamic musical performance. Like, I never felt, I mean, you're aware of it, certainly, because it's a confined space, but I never felt the confinement of it. And of course, I also watched this the whole time reveling in the writing and the performances and thinking what it would have been like to actually see this on stage, to be, to be in the audience with this type of electricity. It's enough electricity just watching it on my screen. That's really good about the, the filmmaking matching the tempo of the performances. I think that's all true. And it's also how each of them take up space within the screen too, you know, in the ways you, you were alluding to, I think this is definitely a more, I guess you could say cinematic adaptation of August Wilson, They and Fences, which uh, Denzel Washington and Viola Davis were in. Denzel Washington directed Fences, and I liked Fences. Um, I think mm-hmm. Washington is a producer uh, on this as well. Uh, yeah. But this this has a little bit more inventiveness for sure in terms of filmmaking, and it doesn't. There aren't too many flourishes, but I do want to highlight one. And this goes back to Glenn Turman. He's the piano player, and at one point, you said how so many of the ensemble members get their moment. This is his. Yes, he sits down at the one. piano and he's improvising this piece. He he describes it as the stew of Africans who have have gathered and now live in America. Uh, and as he's playing and kind of uh, meandering through this piece, Wolf cuts to these, the only time something like this happens, we're outside of the studio, we're, we're in alleys or streets we haven't been to before, a series of like portrait-style tableaus of African-Americans, mm-hmm. just varying skin tones, maybe different fashion choices, suggesting this, you know, people from all over the world who have come and gathered together here. And that was the sort of thing that just kind of, you know, as much as you appreciate all the other elements going on, mm-hmm. you like to see a filmmaker taking advantage of the freedom 
that movie making does allow with this yeah. sort of material without without kind of like shoving the material to the side. You know, just a little just mm-hmm. a little gesture that yep. does so much. I, I really like that. And and you're so right about the the music. I think this is why maybe I found this to be a little more electric than Fences as well. It has to do with the music. You know, that's just gonna it's gonna carry you along. And we should probably know Davis just sings on one of the songs actually, Those Dogs of Mine. I think that's the one. Otherwise, the vocals on those those blues numbers that are the real blistering ones are provided by uh, Maxine Lewis. And that's definitely an element here that kind of just brings brings the energy. It says so much, this combination of Davis's performance and Lewis's voice about Ma as a character. You know, that mm-hmm. again, though, that's where we learn her story. Levy gets the monologue, Ma gets the blues, um, and they yeah. both emerge as these fully formed characters through those moments. The other night at a swell affair Soon as the boys found out that I was there They said, come on Ma, let's go to the cabaret When I got there, they began to say I want to see that dance they call the Black Bottom I want to learn Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is out in limited release, but you can see it on Netflix starting on December 18th. Obviously, two hearty recommendations to catch up with it if you see it and agree or disagree with our takes on that film or Mank or you have any other comments about the show. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Josh, that is our show. It is. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over in the show archives at filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can vote in the current Film Spotting poll, a grisly Christmas movie deathmatch. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out. On digital this weekend, Billy. This is a Billy Holiday documentary based on hundreds of hours of interviews with Holiday's family that a journalist conducted in the 70s. Black Bear with Aubrey Plaza as a filmmaker at an impasse who seeks solace at a rural retreat only to find that the woods summon her demons in intense and surprising ways. I'm intrigued. Red, White, and Blue also out on Amazon Prime. That's part three of Steve McQueen's Small Axe series. Haven't seen this one yet, Josh. Have seen Mangrove and Lover's Rock and highly recommend them. I do think we'll probably have a few more words on on those as we get through the next few weeks. Also recommended earlier by me, Sound of Metal on Amazon Prime. In limited release theatrically, you can see Nomadland, Chloe Zhao's follow-up to 2018's The Writer with Francis McDormand. That's going to inspire our show next week. We'll talk about Nomadland, and it sounds like we're going to stick with our plan. We're going to share our top five Francis McDormand performances. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film spotting is listener supported. 
Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.